It's 6 p.m. and you're tuned to your community radio station, KVMR-FM, Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Wednesday, August 23rd, and this is the KVMR Evening News. I'm Julia Jem. The California Report takes us to LA's La Brea Tar Pits to speak with Emily Lindsay. She's a curator at the Tar Pits and a co-author of a new study. It argues that both climate change and human impacts, specifically human ignited fires, may have been the catalyst for the extinction of the region's megafauna during the Pleistocene. Then, after regional news and weather, Al Stoller talks salmon with UC Davis professor Dr. Non Fungi. Mark Cunaberti closes our newscast with another Money Matters commentary. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles, and here are your California headlines. A series of fires continue to burn along the California-Oregon border, scorching over 40,000 acres and prompting evacuations in Del Norte County. The blazes were ignited last week when a series of lightning strikes hit Six Rivers National Park. At last words, the fires are not close to being contained. Cal Fire says that 5,800 personnel are currently battling 10 active of wildfires across the state, which as of yesterday had burned 65,000 acres in total. In San Diego, the city attorney is suing two local retail chains for allegedly selling flavored tobacco products. That's a violation of state and local sales bans on flavored tobacco. Here's the city attorney, Mara Elliott, speaking to San Diego's Fox 5 about her investigation targeting the chains Keg and Bottle and Payless Smoke Shop. I sent investigators into these retail establishments and they made purchases of products that are not supposed to be on the shelves. And it didn't happen once. It happened many times. So the next step is discovery. We're going to go through their records to figure out how many times they made those sales. And then we do the math. Violations of the ban on selling flavored tobacco are punishable by fines of up to $2,500 per sale. Public health advocates say the products are marketed to get teens and young adults hooked. In Los Angeles, a proposal by Mayor Karen Bass to boost police pay could add nearly $400 million to the city's budget over four years, according to a municipal analysis. That's angered criminal justice reform advocates and progressive city council members who say the money could better be spent elsewhere. But Mayor Bass says more spending on law enforcement is necessary to remedy a shortage of officers in the LAPD. We are providing a $15,000 incentive bonus for any individual that might be interested in joining the LAPD in addition to retention pay so that officers do not retire. Mayor Bass wants to add several hundred more officers to the LAPD's 9,000 member force. Business groups want to make it harder to raise taxes in California. They've qualified a ballot initiative that would require any new taxes to get approval from at least two-thirds of voters. Now, Democrats in the legislature are trying to make it harder for that initiative to pass. Cap Radio's Nicole Nixon has more on this taxation tussle. Assembly Democrats don't want to make it harder to raise taxes. They're pushing a new proposal that would give the business groups a taste of their own medicine. It would require any ballot measure that would raise the voter threshold above 50 percent to pass by its own suggested threshold. That means if the California Business Roundtable and others want to require two-thirds support from voters on new taxes, their ballot initiative would also have to pass by two-thirds support. And the kicker is, voters would also have to approve the Democrats' proposal. If it passes the legislature, it would be on the March primary ballot. For the California Report, I'm Nicole Nixon in Sacramento. 
Support for the California Report comes from Paint Care. Now with more than 850 drop-off sites in California where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at paintcare.org. The Wesley Foundation, investing in California's underserved children and youth. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. When you visit L.A.'s La Brea Tar Pits, you see an enormous variety of fossils from giant animals that roamed the Southern California landscape thousands of years ago, so-called megafauna. But here's a question. Where did all those creatures go? And why did most go extinct so fast? Well, there's a landmark new study out that aims to answer those questions. To find out more, I met up with Emily Lindsay, a curator at the Tar Pits and a co-author of the study. If we had been in the greater LA area 14, 15, 16,000 years ago, when it comes to the kind of animals we would have seen, what would we have seen? It was spectacular. So here in LA, we had mammoths and mastodons, which are relatives of elephants. We had giant bears. We had giant ground sloths. We had dire wolves. So it was just an incredibly rich, biodiverse ecosystem that was dominated by these large, iconic Ice Age mammals. So let's get to your study that you've released. And a lot of it deals with where that megafauna went and why. Talk to me about that. Well, so we did a study here at the Librea Tar Pits where we were able to radiocarbon date hundreds of individual Ice Age animals and figure out exactly when they went extinct. At the time that we were coming out of the Ice Age here in Southern California, it was warming, it was drying, trees were dying. And then right at a point where we see human populations start to uh, rise in North America, we enter this interval where suddenly fire activity in Southern California increases by an order of magnitude. We Mm. have a record of fire going back 33,000 years in the LA basin in Southern California. And there's very little fire in the record uh, for the first 20,000 years of that record. And then right at 13,200 years ago, everything changes. So to you and your colleagues who authored this study, the, the, the obvious and clear culprit here are, are human beings. There are multiple culprits in this story, right? You have the climate change that is pushing the ecosystem to a, a much more flammable point. You have a buildup of fuel load that's probably resulting from the disappearance, the gradual decline in these large herbivores that otherwise would be eating and trampling the vegetation. And then you have a new ignition source, and that ignition source is humans. What 21st century lessons do you think we can draw from your, your research and the research of your colleagues and your findings? So I think this really speaks to the urgency of uh, mitigating global greenhouse gas emissions in order to slow climate change, uh, making sure that we are doing everything possible in this region to reduce the possibility of accidentally set fires, and also to try to protect and ensure the conservation of large animals that play important roles in ecosystems, including in fire regimes. 
Emily Lindsay of the Librea Tar Pits, thanks so much for joining us on the California Report. Thank you for coming by. It's been a pleasure. And that is the California Report for Wednesday, August 23rd. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm your host, Saul Gonzalez. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you back here tomorrow. Turning to local news, Nevada County announced yesterday that Rise Grass Valley, the company who wants to reopen the Idaho-Maryland mine, plans to petition for recognition of vested rights at the mine. According to a letter sent to Nevada County by Braden Chadwick, the attorney for Rise Grass Valley, the company plans to file a petition asserting vested rights by September 1st of 2023. That's in just about a week. Nevada County Council, Catherine Elliott, says that a vested right is a right to continue activity that's existed before a zoning restriction became effective, and that, in this case, if it were granted, it would mean that Risegrass Valley would have the legal right to mine on the Brunswick Industrial Site. The Nevada County Board of Supervisors' previously scheduled hearing on Risegrass Valley's application for a conditional use permit has been canceled. Now, the board will hold a hearing on the petition in late October. The board will make that final determination on whether or not the petition for vested rights is valid by reviewing legalities and also reviewing the facts of the historical use of the mine property. If the board were to approve the petition, the next step would be the consideration of a reclamation plan, and Risegrass Valley would need to provide a statement of responsibility and financial assurances that they could cover potential damages. If the board denied the petition, the county would reschedule a notice public hearing in early December to consider the original proposal to reopen the Idaho-Maryland mine. Sheriff Shannon Moon will join the Nevada County Community Forum at Sierra College's Grass Valley campus this Friday for a discussion on evacuating Nevada County. The discussion will be focused on the ways that Nevada County can ready itself to react in the event of a large-scale emergency. The talk will equip those attending with information on how to be prepared by learning their evacuation zone, becoming familiar with evacuation routes, and planning ahead. Additionally, Sheriff Moon will explain how her office approaches the decision to order evacuations in threatened areas. The discussion will be hosted this Friday, August 25th, by Sierra College Foundation and the Community Forum Steering Committee in Building N12, Room 203, at 10.30 a.m. at Sierra College's Grass Valley campus. And some traffic news. Nevada County announced today that Donner Pass Road is now open. The road was closed months ago due to a large rockfall. Although the reopening comes a week earlier than planned, motorists should be aware that striping of the road will take place nightly beginning Friday, August 25th, through Sunday the 27th. 20-minute delays are possible. And now a look at the regional weather forecast from the National Weather Service. In Grass Valley and Nevada City, tonight, clear with a low around 63. Thursday, sunny with a high near 89. Thursday night, mostly clear with a low around 61. For Truckee and Lake Tahoe, Tonight, mostly clear with a low around 46. Thursday, sunny with a high near 76. Thursday night, mostly clear with a low around 48. And for Sacramento and the surrounding valley, tonight, mostly clear with a low around 69. Thursday, sunny and hot with a high near 97. Thursday night, mostly clear with a low around 63. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR. In the body of any living thing, internal chemical balances are largely determined by environmental factors. For the endangered Chinook salmon, things are no different. 
and that's only emphasized by their population decline as a result of unfavorable habitat conditions. Coming up, KPMAR's Al Stoller speaks with Dr. Non Fungi, a professor and the chair of Department of Wildlife, Fish, and Conservation Biology at UC Davis to learn more. The winter and spring runs of Chinook salmon really dropped about 15 years ago. How are they doing now? They're not doing great. They've been listed as endangered species for quite some time. You know, their spawning habitat has been shrunken down to the base of the dam. Evolution did not design spring-run Chinook to live at the base of a dam. These fish need to spawn, need to spend their early lives in cold, free-flowing mountain streams. If you or I drank only salt water, we would die of thirst as the salt water pulled fresh water out of our body cells. If an ocean-dwelling fish drank only fresh water, it too would die as the cells in its body pulled in that fresh water and swelled up like water balloons. Fresh water or salt, in water or on land, everything alive must juggle water and salt. The atoms and salts are ions. They are either excreting water or they're excreting ions or they're taking up water or they're taking up ions in order to balance so they don't either dehydrate or blow up. You and I do this chemical juggling in our kidneys. Fish do much of this juggling in their gills, the same gills that pull much-needed oxygen from the water. It's as if you or I asked our lungs to act also as kidneys. You see any problems there that evolution had to overcome? Yeah, there's the osmorespiratory compromise, trade-offs between what fish need to do to regulate these ions and what fish need to do to regulate their oxygen, both of these primarily in the fish gill. Some of Dr. Fengi's lab work involves testing how the fish respond to different conditions. A lot of the work that physiologists do includes manipulating and controlling different features of the environment. Maybe it's temperature, maybe it's oxygen. Exposing the fish to different combinations that are ecologically relevant. We use swimming as an index of ecological fitness. A fish that's swimming well, you know, you would interpret that as a good thing. That set of conditions that is depressing their swimming speed, you might wonder. We also use swimming methods to elicit maximum aerobic activity. So think about like an athlete running on a treadmill, and you can do the same thing with fish, basically in a swim tube that is very much like a treadmill. You'll see those runners on treadmills with, you know, the mask to measure their oxygen consumption. We can do the same thing with fish. We do a lot of studies on swimming. We can test their critical swim velocities, kind of the highest speed that a fish can swim for a prolonged period of time, something like 200 minutes. Better than three hours. And those data can be very useful for things like water extraction mechanisms used by the Central Valley Water Projects, you know, louvers and screens and diversions and all of those things to help make sure that those flows are not too fast such that they would outpace the ability of the fish to swim away from those screens, to try to prevent fish from getting stuck on those screens. Juvenile Chinook live in the freshwater of mountain streams. Then they migrate down to the ocean, where they'll feed and grow for two or three years, after which they will return to the streams where they were born to spawn the next generation. They have to completely flip their physiology to a saltwater fish, as they move out towards the ocean. This transition involves complete remodeling of their gills in 100% the opposite direction. 
I've been speaking with Dr. Nan Fongi, Professor of Physiological Ecology and Chair of the Department of Wildlife, Fish, and Conservation Biology at UC Davis. For KVMR, I'm Al Stoller. Participating in the trading of stocks can be inherently risky. For those who are new to the activity, that risk factor is high, and even for seasoned investors, the buzzing threat of potential disaster can still linger. To reduce that buzz, Mark Cunaberti built what he calls a reduced-risk portfolio, using the knowledge that he's acquired over the years. You'll learn more about that up next. Welcome to another edition of Money Matters. My name is Mark Cunaberti. Although I've been in the markets for close to half a century, my wife on occasion worries about the inherent risk when it comes to owning stocks. To appease the concern, I built a reduced risk portfolio using what I have learned over the years. Starting with plain old cash, I hold at least six to nine months of our burn rate in savings and checking accounts, which secures financing our daily life should something happen threatening our liquidity. Next come a basket of CDs, our latter maturity dates, which means buying three, six, nine, and 12-month issues and going out to about three years. I don't go out further than that as I just don't know what will happen in the grand scheme of things year out. Treasury bills can have similar characteristics to CDs being issued by the good faith and credit of the U.S. government. Holding both CDs and treasuries just seems a little bit more diversified to me than holding all CDs. Keep in mind, selling prior to the maturity date could result in a partial loss of principal. I won't go into details here. Just know if you buy a two-year CD, for example, and sell it early, you could take a haircut on the principal. Next comes a smattering of corporate bonds of solid companies. I prefer large, well-known companies. Corporate bonds are debt that pay an interest rate and generally regarded as less volatile compared to holding a stock. Here, once again, I choose the shorter durations that are similar to the durations that I mentioned in my CD portfolio. I also then add tax-free municipal bonds, which can be free from federal and state taxes if the correct type of bonds are chosen. Just make sure you have a crystal clear understanding of each holdings tax implications. Next are two types of annuities I add. The first is a fixed index annuity. This type of annuity may offer a partial participation in stock market increases, but protects you against down market periods. Participation rates, fees, and early withdrawal penalties, terms, and conditions vary with each annuity. So Make sure you understand all the mechanics in any annuity you are considering. Keep in mind that annuities are not U.S. government guaranteed, but instead are guaranteed by the underlying insurance company issuing them. I then add what I call an income annuity. This annuity offers you a certain percentage rate depending on what age you decide to turn on the income period. In general, the longer you wait to turn on the income, much like Social Security, the higher the percentage will be on the payments for life. The payments are fixed for life at that percentage rate. Holding both a growth and income annuity, since they operate differently, can be another step in my target of wide diversification strategies with downside protection attributes. Next on my list would be adding some real estate investment trusts known as REITs. I use the publicly traded REITs, which are listed in the common stock journals. REIT payments can be higher than some dividend-paying stocks, which is why I consider them. Keep in mind that REITs can go up and down in price like a stock, and payments are not guaranteed. I look for the large REITs with good analyst reviews and strong financials. 
because REITs make money from the rents received from properties they own, they may not be as susceptible to stock market movements as other securities may be. Next, I look at what is called aristocratic dividend-paying stocks. Dividends are periodic payments to holders of the stock. Aristocratic stocks are companies that have increased their dividend payments to investors for at least 25 years, and some of them have track records of 30, 40, or 50 years of more of annually increasing payments. Think of a dividend stock as a thank you from the company for owning the stock. Know that dividends can be cut, eliminated, or increased by the board of directors at any time, however. Although aristocratic stocks have impressive track records, there are many great companies that also pay dividends, but have not yet made it onto the aristocrat list. As a general rule, dividends from aristocrat stocks may be less than those that are not aristocratic stocks, as you may be paying for the aristocratic track record of annually increased payment. Finally, not wanting to be completely out of the more volatile part of the stock market, I tend to add a few growth stocks of solid companies that I think may have a good chance of having their stock prices rise significantly over time. There is always risk, but utilizing the above strategies I've mentioned here may reduce risk over an all-stock portfolio. In conclusion, since today's markets, in my opinion, seem to be more susceptible to volatility compared to what I've seen in previous decades, and I've seen a few decades, I tend to lean more into a portfolio of this type when it comes to my personal holdings. I'm watching the market so you don't have to. Remember, this newscast is not meant as investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any securities, nor represents the opinion of any bank, investment firm, or registered investment advisor, nor this media outlet, its staff, members, or underwriters. I hold a BA in Economics with Honors 1979 and California Insurance License OL34249, and I'm a Medicare agent approved in the state of California. Our website is moneymanagerradio.com, where everything is free. Our way of saying thank you for listening to your community radio station. My name's Mark Quinnberg. That's our newscast for this Wednesday, August 23rd. Head over to our website, kvmr.org, or subscribe to the KVMR News Podcast to hear more. KVMR gets support from listeners like you and Milkman Toner Company, providing local hometown service for network printers, copiers, and scanners, carrying remanufactured toner cartridges with printer support, serving Northern California counties from San Francisco to Lake Tahoe. Milkmancompany.com and 1849 Brewing Company, brewing lagers, ales, and specialty IPAs and stouts, offering a pub-style menu, weekly live music, and an outdoor patio. Open seven days a week at 11 on Sutton Way in Grass Valley. 1849brewingco.com Support for KVMR's Future of Radio project comes from AJA Video Systems, empowering the next generation of local journalists and broadcasters. The KVMR Evening News is produced by KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Julia Gem. Have a great night.